0: We're making our way through Paul's letter to the Ephesians as he explores in this letter of his the mystery of the gospel and of the church. And this morning, we come to what one commentator calls the clearest, most expressive, and most loved descriptions of salvation in the New Testament. It is a classic text on salvation, and it's immensely important for us whether you claim to be a Christian or not, because whatever we say about salvation, this passage tells us what we should be meaning when we say it. So let's read this passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is God's holy and inerrant word. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and are the ruler of the kingdom of the air created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him now and ask for his help. Father, we come before you to ask for your help, to ask that you would be merciful and kind and gracious to us, even now, that we would understand Your Word and that it would be applied to our hearts. Even as was just saying for us, the mighty power of our God, we come asking this with full and great confidence because we know that You are the powerful God, the God who opens His mouth to speak and calls everything into being. You are the God who opened... His mouth on Mount Sinai thundered from that mountain the grace and law for Your people. You are the God who came in the flesh. And when Your Son walked to this earth, it was by the power of His voice that He called to the deaf and they were made to hear, the blind and they were made to see, the lame and they were made to walk. It was by the power of His voice that He spoke into death itself and called to life those who were dead. Father, we pray that by Your Spirit You would allow us to hear Your Word with that kind of power this morning. That we would trust in the power of Your voice to wake us up, to confront us, to call us away from all our many idols, and to trust in Jesus. Fathers, we come and gather together. We confess that we're all broken. We all are dealing with life in this broken world, and we are all facing different symptoms of our misery in this broken world. And some come in to this very room, to this very building this morning find themselves just needing a word, just needing a sentence, something that will help them make it through the coming week. There are those who come facing hardships in life and wondering in the midst of those hardships where you are. Wondering and even praying along with the psalmist, how long, oh Lord, how long? And still, there are those who come, and you have been so kind to draw close and to make your presence known in the midst of difficulty. And still, others come with great many doubts and questions and skeptical of the truth of your word. And, and some come with a great many doubts personally, a great many questions personally, wondering because when they look at their lives and they see the great distance that exists between what they claim to be and what they actually are. They're wondering, is there any hope for me? Am I too far gone? Father, we pray and plead with You that You would show us this morning that despite all the varying symptoms of broken people living in a broken world, that we're really all the same. Because the truth is, We're all far more broken, far more fallen than we can imagine. And so we all need the same thing. We need to know that because of the person and work of Jesus, not only are we all far more broken than we can imagine, but because of Him we are also far more loved and far more secure far more accepted than we could have ever dreamed possible. And so we pray this morning, as we look into your word, that you would help us to see Jesus, the author and finisher of our salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Years ago, my wife and I went to this open mic night at this particular coffee shop, and I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, I didn't talk about this with my wife before I got here, but I'm sure she remembers it like it was yesterday, too. It was this really cool atmosphere, this cool venue, and and we saw a couple of really good musicians perform that night, but then this really, really cool-looking guy started making his way to the stage, guitar in his hand, he kind of had had that grungy look about him, you know, perfect coffee shop kind of guy, and had kind of a hoodie sweat jacket on way on his head, and I mean, he just looked the part, and I think all of us in that coffee shop were thinking, oh, this is going to be great. We've heard some good musicians, but this guy, he looks the part, right? I mean, he, we're going to discover some real talent tonight, and um, so he get, gets up to the stage, right, and he's, he gets up to the stage, and he's, adjusts the bar stool and the microphone and all that kind of stuff, and he's getting ready. And then he does something really strange. He pulls this, uh, this is years ago, (laughs) he pulls this portable CD player out, not an MP3 player, pulls this CD player out, and he pushes play and slides it back in his little hoodie sweat jacket, right? And And we're all thinking, that's strange. We haven't seen anybody else do that tonight. Um, But, you know, he got the headphones in. He pushed play, and he started playing, and he was playing some Pearl Jam or Nirvana song or something like that. And, I mean, he was feeling it. He was in the zone, right? I mean, he had his eyes closed. He was rocking on that bar stool. It was just, and it sounded great. But then he started to sing. (laughs) And it was terrible. I mean, it sounded like someone was strangling a beagle in a, a dark alley somewhere. It was horrible, right? And thankfully, he had thankfully he had his eyes closed because at that moment, when he started to sing, all of us were looking at everybody else in the coffee shop as if because it felt like an you know like an out of body experience, and we're all wondering, are you hearing what I'm hearing? Is it just me? What, what's going on here, right? I mean, it seemed like it could have been a, a, a stage joke or something, but unfortunately for this guy, it wasn't. Um, and even as I'm telling you this story, right, I, I think you probably know what went wrong for that poor guy that night. It was the headphones. I mean, look, we all—I sound great when I—I I sound great to myself when I have headphones on, or when I'm singing in the shower, when I can't really hear my own voice, right? And that's what was going on for this guy. He's, I remember it like it was yesterday because it was painfully awkward. I I, I just felt embarrassed for that guy. Um, Also a little thankful because it was very funny. But what I was witnessing wasn't just that guy who was off-key and out of sync and out of tune with the music. It was more than that, right? Because he was off-key, out of sync, and out of tune with reality itself. That's what the headphones were all about. They were keeping him away from reality, keeping him from facing the truth about himself. Right? These verses here that describe salvation for us, they are forcing us into reality, exposing us to who we really are. And when these verses hit home, listen, they deal with both your your tendency and my tendency to think too high of ourselves and to become proud. And arrogant, They deal with that. But they also deal with your tendency to think too little of yourself and to sink yourself into some kind of paralyzing shame. What this passage does is it puts you in a place where if you are willing to accept it, you can live in key and in sync and in tune with reality. And what that looks like and what that produces in your life is neither arrogance on the one hand or self-loathing on the other hand. It produces a real, genuine humility that is shot through with absolute confidence. But to get there, you have to take your defenses down, right? You, You have to take the headphones off and be willing to face reality, the reality of who you are and the reality of who God is. And so I want to take you into this passage to show you three things. Your condition in verses 1 through 3, your purpose in verses 8 through 10, and your rescue, or really how you get from your condition to your purpose in verses 4 through 7. So a little out of order. But first, verses 1 through 3, they're a description of our condition. I said this is some serious, let's get real stuff here. Paul is saying that all of us, not a single one of us, is exempt from this. We were all born into this world dead on arrival, right? It's not a metaphor. It's not hyperbole when Paul says that we're dead. It's not a figure of speech. Paul is saying that the first thing you and I need to face is that we were the real walking dead, if you've seen that TV show. Um, You see, verse 1, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. And what follows is a description of our very real slavery. Because we are, listen, because we are the walking dead, at times we might be tempted to assume that we're not that far gone, right? Uh, that, we're, that our condition is not that absolute. Paul says, think about, think about your slavery. You were not born alive and free. First, you followed the ways of the world and throughout in these verses, that word followed, it is the language of compulsion and slavery, not freedom. Then you, you also follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the, the devil. Again, you are not the master. You are being mastered, is what Paul is saying. And we can say a lot of interesting things about those. But the accent in this passage, it clearly falls on our own culpability. See, there's a third thing that Paul says that we followed here in this passage. And that third thing is internal. The stench of our death and our decay comes from within, is what Paul is saying. Verse 3, we were following the desires and thoughts of our sinful natures or our flesh, gratifying its cravings. We were dead in our transgressions and sin. The focus here is that the blame falls upon us. And that is why Paul can say, that we were born objects of wrath at the end of verse 3. Look, I watch the um, Discovery Channel and the Na- National Geographic Channel a lot, and I love watching those nature shows, uh, you know, and particularly when these shows make use of time-lapse photography. Uh, hopefully you know what I'm talking about, but I just find it fascinating. Um, y- you can't see this stuff with the naked eye, right? But the camera will focus, for instance, on a flower for like a 24-hour period. And then they speed it up with that time-lapse photography. And they show you that 24-hour period in in like 15 seconds, right? If you've seen this, you know. You're looking at this flower on the screen, right? And and when the sun comes up, the petals of that flower open, right? You've seen this but it's more than that because if you watch that 15 seconds as it's going through that whole day, things that you can't see with the naked eye, it shows you how that flower not only opens up when the sun comes out, but how that flower actually traces throughout the day the arc of the sun in the sky. Always facing the sun. They become animated. It's imperceptible to the naked eye, but they're animated in that time-lapse photography. Always facing the sun. Look, you and I were made. We were designed in the very image of God. You are made to face him and find life in him. The flower faces the sun and never turns away from the sun all day long. Because that's where it finds life. But as the theologian Martin Luther describes our condition, he says that we were born with hearts, were curved in on themselves. Not facing the sun, but radically turned in on ourselves. You can't have life turned away from the sun and in on yourself. That is death. Look, sometimes sometimes our curved in hearts express that death in an overt rebellion, right? A real overt rebellion rejection of God and, and of acknowledging Him and, and, and of following Him. And, and life is lived in sharp contrast at times with His design in areas of sexuality and greed and addictions and abuse of power and so on. What's at its core is a heart curved in on itself, a grasping at anything and everything for our own purposes, our own pleasure, our own glory. But I want you to think about this. One commentator whose name is, and I'm not kidding about this, is Klein Snodgrass. Very unfortunate for that guy. But he puts it this way. He says, he writes, Paul is pointing us to a pervasive depravity, a depravity that extends to all human thought and action. This text does not merely address evil sinners. It addresses all of us. Religious people, too, can be dead in sins. See, before you dare take comfort that you are not like those people. More often than not, our curved-in hearts express their death in morality and religiosity. And we live ethical and moral and good lives, and we're good friends and we're good parents and we serve the needy, but we're really doing it all for ourselves in an effort to gain control and power for ourselves, in an effort to soothe the emptiness of our hearts and convince ourselves that we're good. You see, it may appear good on the outside, but it's just another way that we're grasping and seeking to gratify the cravings of our flesh, of our sinful nature. The dead condition that Paul is describing is absolute and universal. Have you faced that reality, that we were by nature objects of wrath, totally curved in on ourselves, turned completely away from the face of God, either in overt rebellion or in morality and religion. Now, second, I want us to look at verses 8 through 10 to see our purpose. We'll come back to verses 4 through 7. Uh, but first, I want to see you to see the contrast, the contrast between your condition and your purpose, right? And, and then we'll come back and talk about how we get To this place. Verse 8 hints at what we're going to be talking about next because it's a summation of verses 4 through 7, namely that salvation from beginning to end is a gift by grace. But think with me about verses 9 through 10 here. The idea that you are not made, that you are not made or remade for boasting. You know, the flower in the field, it, it finds its life and its nourishment as it traces the arc of the sun, right as it draws on the sun. And though that flower may be gorgeous, may be glorious in its splendor, it has nothing to boast about because it draws its life from the sun. When we hear the word boasting, we we tend to think about things like bragging or showing off, those kind of things. But it's more than that. Paul is using the word boast to talk about what you glory in, what you place your confidence in where your hope is, where your trust is. You and I, we are grasping creatures. As we've already said, grasping for our significance. Grasping for our, our meaning, our worth, our value, and our identity. And how do you and I do that? How do we grasp for those things? What we tend to do is we run to our resumes, whether they're real or imagined. And we say, look at my salary. Look at my accomplishments. Look at my grades. Look at my well-behaved children. Look at my simplistic life. Look at my well-connected, complex life. You know, look at my appearance. Look at my career, my moral performance, my personality, my work ethic. And look, a lot of that passes a superficial inspection. It looks good, but at its core, it reveals a heart that will grasp at anything and everything is an identity factor, anything within its reach. This is how we naturally deal with our guilt, with our shame, with our fear, with our failures. This is how you bolster your confidence to face the hardships and the trials of life. We run through the resume, but look at who I am. And we pound our chest assuring ourselves. And it wears you out, doesn't it? I mean, it's exhausting work running to that resume. And we know how fragile it really is, but we keep running to that resume. Paul is saying that you were not made or remade for that kind of life. You are made to face the sun and humbly rest in grace. He's talking about an end to boasting and glorying in yourself. But there's more in these verses than just humility and dependence. Paul says that we are God's workmanship created in Jesus. You see, that's why I kept saying that we we were made and remade. For this, when you when you finally get out of your curve of being curved in on yourself, you realize that you were remade, that you are a new creation. A lot has been made of this word "workmanship" in in this passage that Paul uses. It's the Greek word "poema," uh, where we get our English word "poem." Right, and a good translation of this would be to say that we are we are God's work of art. His masterpiece. Right? Far from a humility that shames you, God assures you that you are his, you are his masterpiece in Jesus. But you know, how is that possible? Because I know some of you pretty well, and I I definitely know myself a lot better than, than I know any of you. How could we even be how could we even come close to be being considered a masterpiece? I mean, with all of our failings, with all of our inadequacies, with all of our sin, with all of our brokenness, the key, I think, is to understand verse 7, that God is taking broken, inadequate, fallen you and me, and He's showing off His grace to the world. And not just grace that gets you out of hell, but His grace that over time transforms you more and more into his image. See, Paul speaks negatively about works in verse 9. It's something to take confidence in. But he comes right back in verse 10 to assure us that God has prepared us for a life of good works. You know, the flower, it, it opens its petals, right, to the light of the sun. And Paul is saying, you were remade, you were recreated to blossom before the Father. To blossom into a fruitful life of good works before your Father in heaven. There's a story about Michelangelo, the artist, chipping away at this shapeless rock and someone asked him, you know, well, what are you doing here? <laughs> and he's, his reply was, I'm liberating an, an angel from this rock. Right? If you are going to possess a right view of reality and have a humility that is shot through with confidence, you have to learn to look at your life from the perspective of heaven. That God is in the process. Even now, in the midst of your brokenness, your sin, your inadequacy, and your failings, he is in the process of chiseling and chipping away and shaping you into the image of his son, Jesus. He has recreated you, brought you to life to realize your purpose in Jesus, which is reflecting his character What does that mean? It means that you are to reflect his character in love, in joy, in peace, in patience, in goodness, in faithfulness, in gentleness, and self-control. It is to be fleshed out in your lives from the inside out in real concrete ways. But let me leave you with one little application here. If God is doing, if he is doing all of this to display his grace, to put it on display for the world, then that means he wants you to reflect that in his character. Are you becoming more and more a person who spills out grace to those around you? Are you becoming quick to forgive and slow to anger? Are you friends with people who are not like you? Are you open to outsiders? Are you hospitable to the broken in your life? Are you becoming a person of grace? Now finally then, your rescue. How do you and I get from our condition to realizing our purpose as new creations in Jesus? Some of you, I think, have probably seen the old uh, sitcom called Home Improvement with uh, Tim the Toolman Taylor. It was a favorite of mine uh, coming up. But um, it, Tim the Toolman Taylor and his neighbor Wilson. And Tim, you know, he's always finding himself in some kind of problem and, or something like that. And he winds up in the backyard of his house talking to his neighbor Wilson over the fence, right? And this neighbor of his, Wilson, is, is like his Jiminy Cricket, you know, or something. He, he's helping him navigate his way through life. And so in this one episode, Tim, he's having this difficulty with his, his boys, and he's trying to figure out how to discipline his boys. And Wilson says that Tim's description of the problem sounds to him like Verica Vulgaris, which Verica Vulgaris, if you didn't know, is the scientific name for warts, Right, and, and well, Tim is—he's always confused in the show, but he's particularly confused here, wondering what what any of this has to do with warts, right? And so this is what wise old Wilson says to Tim, and I wrote it down. What I'm trying to say is most people think the best way to get rid of a wart is to cut it off, but in actuality, that isn't the best solution. See, the wart will reappear because the virus is still below the surface. And then he says. The only way to get rid of a wart is to go beneath the surface of the oily skin and dig out the root. (laughs) Disgusting, right? But here's the deal. If you leave here thinking, "I I know what I'll do now. I'll I'll work harder, I'll try harder, you know, let's say I'll come up with a list for myself, stop boasting in this or that, try to do good works, and then I'll be able to move from my condition to my purpose. If you do that, you are doing nothing more than polishing your own casket. You haven't gotten beneath the oily skin, beneath the surface, to the root of the problem. It's not reflected in our translation here because it would make it really hard to to read in the English, but In the Greek, verses 1 through 7, they are one sentence in the Greek. And like all good sentences, it has one main subject and one main verb. And the main subject of this sentence is God himself in verse 4. And the main verb in this sentence, this long sentence, is in verse 5. He made us alive. How do you... Move from death to life. You don't do anything, Paul is saying. You don't move yourself from death to life. Only God can move you from death to life. Only He can deal with the root of your condition and get beneath the surface of the oily skin and dig out the root. And how does God do that? Just look at the passage. It says that God made us alive with Christ. God got down to the very core of your death and brought you to life. He resurrected the walking dead. You didn't do anything to affect this. God brought about this resurrection, verse 5, when we were dead in our transgressions. But it's more than that. God also exalted us, it says in verse 6. He raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ. One commentator writes that the whole point of these verses is that when God raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him, he raised and exalted Christians with him. Now think about this. Paul cannot mean that we were literally resurrected and exalted. We weren't there at the empty tomb, right? And and we are obviously not literally in heaven right now but it's also more than a metaphor. The whole tone of this passage is one of reality and one of absolutes. So if it's not literal, but it's also more than metaphor, then Paul must mean that we have been legally resurrected and exalted. That word legally, it it doesn't initially sound that exciting, I know, but thank the lawyers for that. But here's the deal. The gospel... The good news, it is a legal declaration, a legal declaration of God's grace to you. That word grace, it's scattered throughout this passage, right? For Paul, you read all his letters, the concept of grace lies at the very heart of understanding the gospel. Now, listen, the words good news or or gospel, um, they reveal to us the nature of of this legal declaration of God's grace. Because, you see, the Greeks, they employed heralds, right, back, back in the day. <laughs> no internet, no telephones, no cell phone towers, right? Um, so that if they wanted to communicate with someone at a distance, they would send messages by way of these heralds, right? And this is particularly how the Greeks would communicate during times of war. I mean, just think about it. You were living in a city during this time, and you knew the empire was at war, and if one of those heralds came running into your city with advice, it was always bad news when the herald came with advice. Because that meant get ready. The enemy is advancing. They push back to our our front lines. Man the battle stations. They're coming. Get ready to fight. Advice is always bad news. But these heralds, they were literally called good newsers when the empire was victorious in battle. right? Because these heralds, they would run to your city, not with advice, that's always bad news, but with a legal declaration, with an announcement, with a proclamation that the battle is over, that the enemy has been entirely defeated, though you never lifted a weapon to defend yourself. The good news is for you. It was done for you on your behalf, and you are free as a result of it. That's the kind of grace that Paul is talking about here. You didn't, you couldn't do anything to set yourself free from your condition, to realize your purpose. God did it for you in Jesus. There is no burden of advice here. Because this is a legal declaration. Okay, listen, the essence of your condition was a desire on your part and my part to substitute ourselves for God, to boast and to glory in and to take confidence in your own resume. And the essence of your rescue was that God came and He substituted Himself for you. He fought the battle for you in your place legally. Jesus came and he satisfied God's wrath by taking it on himself and he legally raised you from the dead and exalted you to the heavenly realms clothing you in his own righteousness so that this great love that Paul talks about in verse 4 it is legally the same kind of love that the father has for his own son Jesus. And it doesn't get better than that. When you get this and you understand this, when, when you boast in Jesus and he is your confidence and he is your glory and he is your hope, it brings an end to all your other boasting and it sets you free in Jesus to do the good works he has prepared in advance for you. It gives you a humility that is shot through with confidence. You are his masterpiece in Jesus. Now, I know I'm going long. Um, I promise you every week I think I'm going to go shorter this week and then I get excited. But um, just to end with one bit of application, I read like eight commentaries this past week. I read, I read hundreds of pages on this passage, right? And you can get real academic with these verses, all, all, all the Greek vocab and syntax and all this other nerdy stuff. Lots of doctrine here. But if you treat it just academically, as information, I think you miss the entire point of this passage. Because I think the entire point of this passage is this Worship. These verses are saying to you, get out of your curved in heart, rest in Jesus, and face the sun. That's why, in about one minute after I pray, we're going to stand together to sing this. We're going to stand together to worship this God. And you and I will sing together till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then, bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse, has lost its grip on me. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful words in this passage. Words of grace, words of kindness, words of mercy. We thank you for the words of resurrection and exaltation. We thank you for the name of Jesus. Father, may we find ourselves captivated by the wonder of the gospel that legally in Jesus all our sins have been dealt with. That the wrath of God was satisfied. That legally in Jesus we have been resurrected and raised up with him and father we pray that this good news to us that it would lead to a life of good works that it would lead to a desire to honor you in all of life that it would lead to a desire to reflect your character in our lives Your grace, Your mercy, Your patience, Your kindness. Father, we pray that You would transform us by Your grace. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.